and welcome to the Cincy Slang and Bearcat Podcast. I'm Coomer, and it's just me today for a quick introduction for a couple of interviews that Hummer and I did earlier this week. First, you're going to hear a conversation that I had with Justin Williams of The Athletic about an article he wrote this week about Wes Miller's journey to the University of Cincinnati. We also chat about the Bearcats' first game and win under Wes Miller against Evansville earlier this week. And of course, we had to game theory it out about where this team could potentially take this thing later this season as we as we continue to progress through the schedule. The second interview you will hear during this podcast is a conversation that Hummer and I had with Chris Hummer, a national college football writer at 247sports.com. Look, anytime you can get two Hummers on the same Zoom call, you got to do it. We spoke to Chris about the Cincinnati Bearcats resume for the college football playoff. It's an, an important note to make that we did record this before the second round of the college football playoff rankings. However, that doesn't really have much of an impact on this conversation itself. We got into it with Chris about national composite rankings and how they can play a role in driving a, I would describe it as a false narrative. Chris Hummer might push back on that a little bit. I'll let you decide for yourselves. And then finally, we asked Chris about the upcoming move to the Big 12. It's a conference he grew up in that in terms of following the sport and loving the sport and, and got his thoughts on what he sees for that conference in the future. This introduction has gone on far too long, so without further ado, let's go ahead and, and kick it to our first special guest, the Athletics, Justin Williams. We are now joined, maybe I should say, I am now joined by Justin Williams of The Athletic to chat about the Cincinnati Bearcats team kicking off the West Miller era Kicking off is probably the wrong word. Tipping off the West Miller era uh, against Evansville. Justin, thank you for joining the Cincy Slang and Bearcat podcast. I'm I'm happy to be back. Is is Hummer abstaining? Is he he mad about the the run defense or or the West Miller <laughs> offense or or what is it now? Well, Hummer's very worked up over the run defense, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think. Tim Brando talked him back off the ledge earlier this week and kind of reinstilled the faith. Um, I, I was trying to explain yesterday. It kind of dawned on me. It's like, you know what? Enough with the, enough with the style. Like, let's, let's throw the style out the window. Let's just win some games and, and have some fun. I think that's really all they need to do. So I'm going to, uh, we, we're kind of in football overload this week. Uh, Hummer and I are, are a bit delirious after recording. Uh, I think it's, this is like the fourth podcast of the week. So uh, I hope I can keep it together. I am very excited about the basketball season, and I imagine you have you have plenty to enlighten us upon. I want to start, though, with the feature you wrote about Wes Miller for The Athletic uh, just before the season tipped off. It's called Wes Miller's Path to Cincinnati is One of Opportunities Earned and Seized Again and Again. So when you're writing a profile like this about a coach like Wes Miller who has connections and 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 relationships all over the state of North Carolina where do you start with that type of piece like where how do you find out who are the relationships that matter and where what what path you're going down yeah I mean it was 
partly by talking to him. Um, and honestly, you know, I, I wrote that story earlier in the offseason where I, I read his book, which I'll be honest, I don't think he loved. I think like he's he's proud of it, but I think he's proud of it and like that I did it, not that I want you to actually read it type deal. Um, so I think when I told him I was reading it, I think he was kind of just like he didn't say he'd rather me not, but I think maybe he 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 might have rather me not, but you know, so I, I read that and there was, you know, a lot in there, not a lot, but a little bit in there, you know, before he kind of got into some of the college stuff about his childhood and growing up. So that was, that was helpful. But really then when I talked to him for like that, that piece after I had read it um, and I had mentioned to him that I wanted to do something, you know, I kind of kicked around, like, is it uh, something about your family? Cause he's, he's got a big family and, you know, his parents are, have been super influential in his life, but you know, Wes is a basketball guy and it became pretty obvious. Everyone knows like Roy Williams. And, and, you know, that was obviously Roy's a big character in the story I wrote, but I, I didn't, you know, go to, to quote him because, you know, I thought it was more interesting to maybe get some of the people around him. So it definitely, you know, probably started at Carolina, but then you're kind of just, uh, you know, I guess going forward in the UNCG case, uh, but going backwards to some of the prep school, just Greensboro growing up. Um, and, and yeah, you know, they just, they just pop out. If you talk to Wes Miller about UNCG, he's going to mention Kim record, you know, pretty quick, the, who was the athletic director his entire time there. So she was kind of an obvious one uh, to talk to. And if you, you know, just talking about people who are in his life, like Eric Hoots from North Carolina and Sean May, like those are people that are going to come up. I tried to get Tyler Hansborough because um, I guess Wes is close to him or as close as anyone can be to Tyler Hansborough. I get the sense he's kind of an enigmatic figure um, who I think is it, it wasn't Wes, but at some point someone I was kind of asking, like, where is Hansborough? And they said he's either in Chapel Hill or China. And I was like, well, I don't I don't know if I'm going <laughs> to be able to track this guy down then. Um, but I mean, you know, the, the people I talked to, I felt like I got more than enough. And there, there were some people I talked to just kind of background, too. And, you know, C.B. McGrath, who's who's quoted in that piece, he's on his staff and he coached him at Carolina. Same with like Mike Roberts, who knew him in prep school and then was at with him. Uh, at UNCG and is now with him again. Uh, so th there was definitely a lot of people who have ties to him that kind of helped me figure out who I needed to go to. And then from there, it was like trying to tell the story through those people. So the, the, the theme that seems to spread across each person you spoke with, and it doesn't necessarily seem unique to college coaches. It seems to be a, a, a profession that does attract a certain personality type, but again and again and again, people came back to, how hard this guy works and, and putting in the extra hours, whether it be as a basketball player with, with Sean May, uh, whether it be on the coaching side of things uh, and his desire to become a coach, which is why he joined uh, the, or he transferred to North Carolina in the first place to be a walk-on. I'm kind of curious what your take is though, on kind of like the intrinsic motivation and why he is the way he is, you know, what is it about, what what's made him like this? Because what's interesting about Wes is he does have all these people he had he made close relationships along the way, be it with the AD, be it with you know coaches in, in Greensboro. But you know, there's no like close, like necessarily like family members or or there's no spouse. But so what is it? What's making him tick and what's making him the way he is? Yeah, I mean the 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 work ethic thing was always something that kind of came up immediately. But you're right. I mean, I, you know, you could do a profile on any college a successful college coach or college athlete. And that's, you know, going to be at the top of the list. So what kind of struck me about Wes is like, yes, he had that. Um, but 
what kind of kept coming up the longer you talk to people is his ability to connect with other people. And so that was, you know, certainly something I tried to get into the piece, which is like, yeah, he, you don't get to where Wes Miller is at without working hard, but kind of what has given him, you know, I don't know, maybe something a little extra that has helped him be successful is, is his ability to connect in terms of like where his motivation comes from. You know, I, I, it's one of those things where it's, you know, I think it was hard for a lot of people to kind of put into words, but I felt like Sean may, and I don't know that he realized he was doing it, but kind of at one point was just like a lot of people see themselves in Wes and like, you know, Wes Miller is not shy about this. He, he's a short white, well-off kid from, from North Carolina. Like, you know, that's kind of just who he was, but I, I don't think that he ever wanted that to define him like positively or negatively. He always wanted to work hard, um, whether it be as a basketball player or coach, but he also never wanted to like view himself as better than anyone else or, or feel disconnected in any way. And that's why I think you can see him really, you know, definitely navigate like recruiting a 16 year old, 17 year old kid um, and interacting with like, octogenarian boosters you know and and just kind of finding finding common ground with those people and, and, and anyone in between honestly uh and i i think it just takes a particular skill i wrote it in an earlier piece when i think i was writing about his coaching staff but um you know mike roberts talked about like coaching is working hard and dealing with people and he's like and, and Wes Miller does both those things and that's like if you know Mike Roberts a little bit it makes sense that he would just simplify it that that easily but I, I think that's true and you know what has made Wes really successful is his ability to to deal with people and some of that I think is um intrinsic to him and just part of his personality and some of that I think is stuff he's actually worked on as a coach and as a human being as he's gotten older I feel like that's evidenced by the fact that when he was hired, the, I, I would say like, generally speaking, the fan base loved it, but there was some split there based on, based on Eric Martin being a candidate and folks wanting that, that Bearcat alumni. And, and so you had a lot of the former Bearcat basketball players who were publicly upset about the pick and, and feeling like it was another example of the administration kind of casting aside this Bob Huggins era it seems to be the underlying sentiment of that group, but Wes Miller comes in with that public backlash and is, and wins them over seemingly instantaneously. Like I'm going to prioritize this alumni meeting. I'm going to get you on the phone or on zoom. We're going to chit chat. And then in the coming weeks and the weeks after that, it seems like all is completely well. He's got more alumni returning for games. Just the, the, the entire situation seemed to be smoothed over. So I feel like that is a nice, uh, easy example for like how good he is at managing relationships and building trust in a very quick way. Yeah. And I think he totally understood how to do that. You know, he, he said on one of those early zooms, you know, he's part of the, the Carolina family, which is a big thing there. And, you know, he came out and said, like, if, if Carolina had basically hired someone, you know, like the equivalent of me at Cincinnati, he would be pissed and a bunch of Carolina people would be pissed. So he was kind of like, I get it. And the other thing, and, you know, I doubt he like goes into it knowing this, but it goes back to this connecting thing. There's going to be very few people who like spend any significant amount of time talking to him and, and don't come away, you know, charmed or, or liking him. And so I think that was the other thing is he knew kind of how to disarm or approach the situation. But I think just like being himself, you know, part of that's probably like, yeah, he's a, he played at Carolina. Like, all right, if you're Kenyon Martin or, or Eric Hicks, like you're probably going to have respect, even, you know, even though he's a short white kid who walked on initially, like you played at Carolina, you won a national championship. Like there's a little bit of, you know, intrinsic um, respect there. And, and Wes 
in, you know, while he is a humble guy, he, he has a little bit of that confidence. And I think that just comes out naturally. And so I, I think it was something where, yeah, he knew whether it was former players, whether it was people in the community, you know, he, he was going to have to win them over, but I think he kind of felt confident that he could do that. And that's continued, you know, I I've, I haven't been to a ton of practices, but I've been to a few. There are always people there, whether it's former players, high school coaches, you know, college coaches, um, family members or something like that. Like he he's kind of has like an open doors policy, which, again, is a Roy Williams, Carolina thing. Um, and, and I think you just anyone who might have been skeptical early on, I, I think he he did whatever he could consciously or subconsciously to, to kind of smooth that over. So if there was going to be a Bearcat equivalent of becoming the coach at North Carolina, who is that guy? Who's who's the Bearcat equivalent of getting hired at North Carolina and the players looking at it and saying, what? Like who would Wes Miller be pissed about if they hired him at North <laughs> yeah. Carolina? Who would Wes Miller be pissed like, about? I mean, what, like what, Nolan Smith would probably be the like extreme example, right? That would never fly. Ooh, yeah. But anyone oh, I was almost, like I was Taz. almost, yeah, Duke Taz would be absurd. Duke Taz <laughs> would be absurd. But I'm thinking almost like the the Cincinnati Bearcat. Like who's the, oh. who's the former Cincinnati Bearcat that would be hired that would at North Carolina and would piss Wes Miller, the North Carolina alumni off? Yeah, I mean, she could probably just like maybe it was Eric Martin. Maybe he's a good example. You know, I, you could just kind of go anybody simplify just, yeah. that. Yeah, um, you know, Demar Johnson. He's a guy who obviously is not nearly in the same place as Wes in his career. But think about like he's in the coaching profession. He's a guy who's going to garner a lot of respect because of his you know history as a player. But he has no you know he's a DMV guy. And he has no ties to Carolina. So if you kind of right. take the equivalent of someone like that. Um, you know, someone who they, they might not initially be okay with, but is probably going to win them over eventually. And that's, you know, again, whether Wes realized that going into it or not, you know, that became pretty clear, pretty quick. Well, his personality sure came through on the court in his first game. It was, I was very curious to kind of see the sideline demeanor to see how animated he would be to see what kind of sideline personality he has. And I was kind of surprised to see like, this is a guy who was smiling on the court at different moments of the game uh, very energetic on the sideline, rushing up and down the court. Not a lot of sitting down, it seemed like. And from my vantage point, the team seemed to feed off it. Like the team already seems to have a personality that essentially reflects who their head coach is. Um, is that does that come back to already just like the relationship building, the trust, and, and just his gent overall charisma? Yeah, I think so. You know, he's he's still a young guy. He's he's 38 years old um, and in coaching. That's that's really young. But that's also what he's like, you know, all the time in practice. He's he's always like jumping in to a drill and, you know, showing them, no, it's like this. And, you know, he still has that like player mentality in him and it, and it really comes out in practice. But yeah, I think you saw in that, you know, Kim record, it didn't make it into the piece, but she told me like if he's back to wearing a suit, that jacket's not going to stay on long. And, you know, I, I actually missed it. Like I looked down a minute into the game and it was already off. And I was like, well, wow, that was, that was pretty quick. So yeah, he has that natural energy. Um, I, I do think that's something he tries to infuse into the team. And, and part of that, you know, he talked after the game that he felt like there was, you know, he saw his players kind of having joy for the game of basketball out there. And I, I think that's kind of because that's the way he is and that's the way he hopes to approach it. Um, so yeah, I, I, it is one game. And, you know, as I've said many times since last night, like I'm certainly going to recognize it's a small sample size before jumping to huge conclusions. But as a, as a, you know, if you're a Cincinnati basketball fan, I don't know how you watched that last night and didn't come away at least, you know, encouraged by that small sample size. Uh, I came away giddy. 
I was cackling throughout the game. I, uh, as a Bearcat fan, someone emotionally invested, I was, uh, that was pure joy. And so I, I asked this of you, if there's a, if, as we kind of start diving into the, the team itself, the players, the, the roster makeup, Wes, I, th- I guess we dressed 12 scholarship players for yesterday's game. Rob Banks is out with an injury for a few weeks, uh, a knee injury, I believe. All of them played. Guys were being thrown in all over the court. It actually didn't necessarily seem like Wes was even thinking about, I would need to make sure this lineup's out there and this lineup's out there. It kind of felt like, you know, just uh, kind of like paint by splashing it on the canvas. Um, was that an intentional move by Wes in game one, just to kind of see it's game one, it's an inferior opponent. Let's see what we've got with these 12 guys. Yeah, I think it was maybe less about lineups and more about can these guys play together? Can Victor Locken and Hayden Koval, you know, coexist on the court together? Can uh, JD and Odia Guama play together? Can Micah and Mike Saunders play together? Uh, And so I think that's probably more what it was as opposed to like, can I play a small lineup? Can I play a big lineup? Stuff like that. Uh, And I, you know, I think he, he was, he understood the situation, especially when they went on that run and then got up. It's like, all right, you know, I need to make sure I get everyone in, you know, AJ McGinnis played the, the least and he came in th- those last few minutes. But I think if you look at, I got still the box score right in front of me, everyone played double digit minutes except Hensley and McGinnis. And like, I think that's a, you know, a pretty good symbol or signal of kind of what the rotation would look like. I think so what, that would be 10 guys above that. I think at least early on those, those other 10 guys are kind of going to be your core, um, rotation and I think they're going to try and get Hensley and McGinnis minutes you know when they can um, but he you know Wes said after the game like he he said he didn't decide his starting lineup until I guess would have been Wednesday and that he probably doesn't think he'll have a you know a tight rotation set until January and you know, if, I can't remember right with you guys that that's the difference between football and basketball though right is football you have this training camp lead up and then you kind of got to go into the season and you can't take your time to rev up basketball like a lot of non-conference play is these by games um and Evansville's a good team but when they're playing the Alabama A&Ms and the Florida A&Ms and you know stuff like that like that's the reason for that is you kind of try and figure out what fits and so I think we're gonna see that whether he changes up starting lineup or just is always kind of experimenting when the game allows I think we'll see that for the next few weeks the most jarring comment I'd say after after the game was was the fact that Wes said he he went up to Mike Saunders earlier in the week, said, you've earned a starting spot. Does, do I sound right to you? Yep. Okay. Uh, earned a starting spot, and but that he thought it would be better for the team for him to come off the bench. Specifically, what do you think he means by that? Like, what is it about Mike Saunders Jr. in his game that he does think would be beneficial to the team to have him coming off the bench as opposed to starting in place of blank? I'm not even sure who, who he would have started in front of, whether it be John Newman, whether it be... Uh, Micah Adams Woods. What do you think that is? I think it would have been Micah. I think it's pretty clear. Those, those are your point guards, you know, and maybe Micah can play off the ball if Saunders is in the game, but like Micah and Mike are, are going to be your point guards. Yeah. You mentioned you went up and talked to him. Like he said, he took him out to lunch, like, you know, <laughs> and this goes back to the connection thing. Like, you know, it's, I'm sure it's something that Wes was probably either nervous about or dreading um, because he brought it up in the post-game press conference. People didn't even ask about it. And, you know, he kind of mentioned like, Saunders reaction to it which for him you know was very gratifying and fulfilling as a coach that Mike was like I'll I trust you I'll do whatever you want um in terms of what I took it to mean is I think it meant like they probably he was probably trying to decide do I start Mikey or do I start Micah 
Um, and you know, what it, what it was that he meant, I think it's better coming off the bench. I don't know. Maybe it was kind of that like burst of speed and athleticism. Um, maybe it was just something about running the second unit. Uh, I, 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 we didn't get into kind of what it was that made him make that decision, but to me, it showed like how, I don't know how, how he's thinking about those things. And like, you know, I, I think he understood probably if you, if you go pretty deep, like, all right, Mike Saunders is one of the first guys I went to see when, when I got the job and I had to basically convince him to come back to Cincinnati and come out of the portal. And I don't, he certainly don't think he went there and promised him like, you're going to be a starter, but there was kind of this implication, like you're a big part of what we, what we do. And so I'm guessing West didn't have lunch with seven people and tell them they're not starting, um, you know, in the, in the week or days leading up to the game. So I think it was him kind of acknowledging like Mike Saunders is a huge piece of what we are right now and what we're going to be moving forward. Um, and, and so as much to tell him, but also to tell, you know, the media and the fans, like don't misread him, not starting as, as like that changing at all. Mike Saunders Jr. is a very different personality, but he feels like uh, the equivalent of what Draymond Green is to the Golden State Warriors, where behind the scenes, everybody just raves about him. Everybody seems to love Mike Saunders Jr. And he's even gone so far as to like recruit players to Cincinnati and get them here. So he very much seems he must be kind of one of these like, you know, leaders. And you're right. Wes probably knows that there's there's a certain level of expectations or even. Uh, hype around Saunders where, hey, he's on the bench. That means he's not doing well. And that kind of sort of nips nips in the bud, that type of talk. Um, yeah, and I thought it was interesting to hear what, you know, we asked, we talked to Mason and uh, JD after the game and like we asked them and, you know, Mason, who also didn't start, was kind of like, we've talked about you're going to have to sacrifice on this team. And, you know, you could look at the roster and say, I'm sure there are plenty of teams that would start Odia Guama. I'm sure there are plenty of teams that would start Hayden Koval or start Mason Madsen. Um, and so that's a testament to some of the depth on this team, but you know, and again, it's game one, they won. I realize everyone's, you know, feeling good about it right now, but at least early, which is all we have to go on. It's certainly encouraging that that's kind of the mindset um, that this team has about buying in and, and sacrificing. And that's, you know, not to make too many comparisons, but that's something we've seen. I feel like, on the football program under Luke Fickle too. No doubt. Um, going into the season, I ran, I, I just kind of looked up the numbers on how many minutes these guys played last season for their respective teams, whether they were Bearcats, whether they were at Greensboro, Clemson, and there's 10 guys who entered the season and, and last year in college played 15 or more minutes per game. The One of those guys was A.J. McGinnis at Greensboro, but it didn't include Jared Hensley and it didn't include uh, – the real wild card of this team, which is Victor Locken. And Victor Locken, guy who was injured last year with a knee injury, didn't play any minutes, came from Russia, uh, kind of a mystery player. And when he did come from Russia, I think 24-7 rankings in terms of recruiting basically was like, this is basically a top 150 player. Very talented. People rave about his IQ. Well, AJ McGinnis didn't get the same minutes he got last year. The guy who took those minutes was Victor Locken. And in game one, he's like, I think he is the player that I, I am most fascinated with on this team at this point, based on the hustle, the buy-in, seemingly a very high basketball IQ. Um, and we heard Kevin Johnson say it on the broadcast. The rumors have been kind of floating around, but this guy's apparently leading practices in points, rebounds, assists. He's blocking shots. Tell me more about this, this, this player. Tell me more about Victor Locken. 
Yeah, I mean, he's a mystery to you. He's a mystery to, to me. He was a mystery to Wes Miller. I mean, Wes told me in one of the first pieces I wrote, and he was like, I have to be delicate about this. I just don't know anything about the guy. I think he, <laughs> like the day after Wes got the job, you know, it was it was pre-planned, but Victor went back to Russia for a little bit. So they were like these kind of ships passing in the night. Um, he still wasn't totally cleared to play. He kind of re-injured or, or suffered another injury early in preseason um, that, you know, I there was some worry i think initially but it was just kind of i think the the biggest worry was like is this guy ever going to stay healthy um and then he had you know west talked last night he had a little ankle tweak that put him out some time um but anytime they've gotten him on the floor and you know you i've seen it when i'm at practice i've heard it from people who have seen more practices than me it's like yeah he's just constantly making plays and he kind of has a little bit of that like you know European clumsiness where like you're like well that guy's not that athletic but he's making really athletic plays and you know like oh so actually yes he he is athletic it's just you know he the way he does it isn't it's not always smooth or anything like that but he has he does he has really good instincts you know he deflects a lot of passes um that was one of the things they talked about in practice and I think you even saw it a couple times last night he has really good hand-eye coordination really good reaction um and you know that's that's part of it he has a good sense of where the ball is going to be so yeah, you know, this is also a guy, at least when when he came, whatever that was, 14 months ago, like we were told he could type right English, but didn't really speak it that well. And, and that certainly improved over the last year. But so you just kind of, you know, think about all he's gone through um, personally and athletically. Uh, and, and I think they feel like they have someone who is as long as he can stay healthy and continue to progress the way he has, like could could be a really special player, you know, potentially even like a next level NBA type player. Yeah. And I, it's kind of mind blowing. It's, it's, it's yeah. kind of mind blowing. It's, it does go back to uh, the, the former coach does deserve some kudos for his ability to identify and, and attract talent to Cincinnati. Cause there are, there are several players on this team that are here because of, uh, from that prior prior coaching staff um, and, and Victor Locken is certainly at least in game one. And I know there's plenty of seasons to go. I think the injury things are still a concern. He's also by far the best at social media. I don't know if you have Instagram. The man's incredible at Instagram, like legitimately an Instagram star. And I think legitimately did like stand up comedy in in Russia at some point. So, yeah, he has a he has a good sense of humor. No, you're right. You know, John Brandon deserves credit. Sean Dwyer was the lead recruiter on Victor Locke and like basically I don't know, discovered him, but watched him play over in Greece um, a couple summers ago and was was kind of responsible for bringing him here. So you're, you're right that that talent evaluation was there. And I think if you talk to anyone the the talent was the concern, it was, and you know, health wasn't even that it was almost just like no one had seen him. You know, he showed up in America and had a busted knee and couldn't really practice or play at all last year. So even if it's like, yeah, we know this guy can play because, you know, we've evaluated him overseas. When are we going to get to see that here? And it almost felt like as instant as when they got to see it, this coaching staff got to see it this off season. Like they were like, Oh yeah, this, this guy's a player. He and he and Koval played a ton of minutes together as sort of the backup bigs in that game. And I mean, just were dominating the rim. The rim defense on, on the team was incredible. I don't want to ask a leading question. I already kind of have. What is the most, if we're talking like preseason coaches uh, or preseason American athletic rankings had the team finishing sixth. Ken Palm had the Bearcats ranked like seventh in the conference. Um, there's just not a lot of buzz for the team. There's not a lot of hype. If there is something about this team that could help them propel them well past what these expectations were from, from outside folks and outside media 
what do you think that specifically is about this roster that makes them special? Yeah, I mean, I, I think room protection is the obvious one because they it was so lacking last year. And so that's just, again, it's hard to project something that you didn't see. Um, and, and you saw it from, honestly, all four of those big guys, Aguama, Lockin, Koval, and Adu last night. And uh, it's certainly, that's something, that depth, just the fact that they have those four guys, they feel like they can play. Um, you know, I think that's encouraging. Uh, but just to, to have a much more shot block rim protection presence uh, I think will be a huge help for them and the other thing I, I think is probably the depth I mean again we'll, we'll see it's just game one um, but the fact that we could go through and name a couple guys coming off the bench you know I think you could easily put Odia Guam in the starting lineup you could easily put Mike Saunders in the starting lineup and it's hanging with Houston and Memphis and is tough although what Houston barely beat Hofstra last night uh, Wichita State needed a, a Dame Lillard three from Etienne to beat Jacksonville State so again it's it's very early but just in that conference in general I can't imagine many teams below some of those top teams are going to have the the depth of talent and experience that Cincinnati has that's another thing they're like the fifth oldest team in college basketball and you know if the whole get old stay old uh you know th they kind of hyper sped that up with this team but they're they're old and experienced even if they aren't experienced with each other and that could have an impact as the season goes on too that was the thing that I thought made the Bearcats sort of undervalued is that the team is full of guys who are, who can play at this level. I think the biggest uncertainty is offense. I still think we have plenty of questions about that. When you look at, there's really only two guys who can consistently, or at least played big minutes last night who are going to be knockdown shooters. Mason Madsen's knockdown shooter. Jeremiah Davenport's a knockdown shooter. Outside of that, there's not a lot of proof that anybody else who's in, in the rotation based on first game minutes are going to be knockdown shooters. So it's, I think that's one of the bigger questions on the team. I did want to ask you about Oguama. Um, if I asked you to think of one player who he kind of reminded you of, and it doesn't mean that you have to project him out to be like an NBA player or anything, but I know, I, I, I kind of know where your uh, affinities are in terms of former basketball players, maybe retired basketball players. Is there anybody that kind of jumped out at you who, who maybe he, he made you think about? So I had not thought of this. As you were giving me the question, I came up with an answer. You seem to think you seem to have an idea of who you think I'm going to say. Yeah, I do. Who do you think I'm going to say? I, I would. Well, it's the same guy that that and I was just talking with my dad about it, but it was Dennis Rodman. Like I kind of like junkyard doggy, uh, not a lot of <laughs> junkyard doggy, junkyard dog E with the Y. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, no, just someone who's kind of like like the, the number of tipped offensive rebounds like plays he had, the activity, the way he moves, uh, the size. It kind of like there were Rodman vibes. It doesn't mean he's as great as Rodman was defensively necessarily, but just stylistically, that's, cool. that's, who, that's who jumped out at me. Who would you have said? Uh, yeah, that was not who I thought. My initial thought was like early Serge Ibaka, like the oh, early wow. Thunder Serge Ibaka. You know, Serge, he, and maybe Aguama can too. He became a, a better shooter and honestly probably became – less good of a shot blocker and rebounder as he was. But I remember those early like Thunder, KD, Russ, James Harden teams. Like Serge was just the guy who was getting boards, running the floor, blocking shots, kind of, you know, the energy guy. And like, that's what Odie felt like. And that's what he is. You know, uh, I hope to write the story at some point, but they, they have these things that, you know, they wear at practice that tracks, you know, how much they're running and what their heart rate and all that kind of stuff is. So, you know, basically they can scientifically tell who's working the hardest. And Odi Aguama is always the guy every practice who's, who's working the hardest on that team. Like he's just nonstop motor. And you saw a little bit of that last night. 
he's still one of those guys who I think is really raw and like figuring out how to use his athleticism. Um, they actually have him playing the five when he's in there a lot because Koval and, and Lockin can shoot. So, you know, they can play a little bit four because they can do more of the pick and pop stuff. Um, so that's something he's going to have to develop with his game, uh, you know, a little bit more outside shooting. But he just seems like a guy who could, in some games, get like a double-double purely off of like offensive rebounds, running the floor, effort points. Um, and, and, yeah, I think that's, you know, for, for someone who I think they hope can develop and get a lot better, that's, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, super springy, has good hands, obviously can finish like hell. And, uh, yeah, he just moved kind of like, I, yeah, Serge Ibaka is a pretty good comp too. He just kind of has that like springy way about him, gets hand, gets his hand on 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 balls on the offensive boards constantly. I do think, like, do you, it was interesting to see how he paired up big men, but it does seem like Wes is kind of well aware that Adu, by the way, Matt Noonan was saying Adu. Do I have that right now? It's not a doe, it's a do. I believe it's a do. I do. So um, thank you, Matt Noonan. I, I call him, I call him dual. The players call him dual a lot. So that's <laughs> okay. when in doubt, go with the nickname. It does seem like he's, he's, he's shying away from putting a do and a guama together, knowing that you have so much shooting limitation, very crowded paint. It would be fun to watch from a rebounding standpoint. Um, <laughs> what is it about a do that led him to getting the start in this first game? Because I would say of the four big men, he probably had the least impressive first game, but what is what is Wes seeing in practice with the do that made him kind of identified as as the stalwart at the center position? Yeah, and I, I mean, my guess would just be experience. Like the guy started 130 games in the SEC. No, no one on the team has that kind of experience. Very few people in college basketball have that level of experience going against that level of competition. So I think that was part of it, and I think you know. So what he played 11 minutes last night, I, I'm sure he that will I don't think that's like going to be a, a standard for him. But I think you're going to see of those four more traditional bigs, Duel, Odie, Vic, Hayden, like I think they feel like they can play some of them, you know, interchange them a little bit and, and based on matchups, put them in there. So my, my guess is he started because of an experience toughness level. Um, but I think we'll see depending on personnel and, and matchups you know, it, it could change from game to game in terms of who's kind of leaned on more there. If you have, what, what would be the biggest question mark, maybe biggest two question marks on this team? Like what's, what is the thing that keeps them as a five, like a projected 500 team per Ken Palm and, and why there's maybe still reason to have healthy skepticism? I mean, if, if we're just going, you know, again, it's kind of hard because maybe they come out one night and they do turn the ball over a ton. They obviously didn't do that last night, or maybe they, they come out one night and they don't rebound as well. I, you know, Wes wasn't who happy with their rebounding last night. I thought their rebound was pretty good. Um, I think scoring like for this team to be successful and maybe perform above their projections. I feel like they're going to need the Julius and Davenport to score pretty consistently, not like 20, 25 points, but I feel like they're going to need those guys in kind of the dozen to 16 points every night you know, type range. So that, and then you kind of referenced earlier is shooting, um, you know, yeah. Mason comes in and hits a, hits a couple bombs and that seemed to kind of settle them down last night. There aren't a ton of guys on the team who can do that. I think John Newman is, you know, he, they, they feel he's a better shooter than probably he showed last night and probably what he showed at Clemson, but you're right that they don't have this bevy of knockdown shooters. So finding guys who can hit shots and then, you know, making sure DeJulius and, and Davenport can score consistently because I think all those guys around them 
can can be the you know six points eight points ten points kind of that you need i don't think that's actually the problem with this team i think it's just making sure those two guys are are consistent scoring has west miller installed the zone offense yet it didn't seem like it based on his reaction when Evansville dropped into a matchup zone. Um, at least after the game, he, he seemed to kind of be like, oh, no, what do we do? Um, I have seen I know at least one of the practices I saw them work on, you know, a little bit going against like a standard two, three. Um, my guess is if you had asked Wes Miller that question, he would tell you that he doesn't feel like he has his man to man offense installed yet. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, which again, I thought. I thought it looked all right last night, you know, in, in a small sample size, but I think, you know, he's a defensive guy. And I think that was kind of what they prioritized heading into this season. Well, I think it's, it's, this team is so interesting. Like you don't really know what you've got until it's gone. So we, we had 13 years of Mick Cronin playing elite defensive basketball and winning games, the ugly way the old school way. And it, you kind of grow weary of it and you want to, embrace this new exciting style of basketball run and gun three pointers. Well, we did that for two years. And then you remember, well, college players are not NBA players and they're not going to make shots at the same clip. They're going to turn the ball over more. And then you're going to get incredibly frustrated at watching layup after layup after layup. Um, So I think the starting point of of holding a team to 43 points is incredibly uh, it's an incredibly good sign. I also think that teams will zone the hell out of the Bearcats going forward. The one counter they would seem to have to that, though, is and, and maybe you could agree, disagree, but with the size they have, they're just going to crash the boards. And maybe what Wes, Wes Miller is talking about with with being disappointed in the in the rebounding is just he wants to see 10 double digit offensive rebounds every game. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, the zone is interesting. You know, I remember I can't remember if it was year one or year two, but John Brandon at one point was just like, I can't believe how much zone you know, people play in this league. So even just, you know, league in general, there's, there's some predisposition to that. And yeah, you're right. I think you might see teams do that. If that's the case, I think, you know, you might see a lot of like, all right, Mike Saunders use that, use that speed to kind of get in, break down those zones because they have a lot of guys they can, you know, we saw, I think it was Micah drove in and dished to Odie for like a little baseline dunk last night. That's the kind of stuff they have the personnel to do that. So as a, as opposed to like the, pass it around Chuck three zone offense. I think you might see a lot more of the, yeah, let's, let's get inside and try and break down this zone from the inside out um, at least based on what we've seen initially. So it'll be interesting to see how teams guard them. The other thing is, and this is a Carolina thing, like they want to get out and run. They want to prevent teams from setting up whether zone or man to man, if possible um, with, with kind of rim running bigs and trailing bigs and flowing it right into the motion offense. So, you know, I think the the answer to that would be don't let them get set up in a zone if, if that's what teams turn to. So the two most important offensive players on this team, you alluded to David DeJulius and you mentioned Jeremiah Davenport, two guys who probably have to be leaned on for scoring. I was interested to see Jeremiah come into the season as a guy who, you know, freshman year, he was energy guy off the bench, did not um, play a lot of minutes and was, not even relied on to do anything, but just basically make a play and scream at the crowd. Second year he comes in, he becomes a knockdown three-point shooter. He doesn't see his in his usage rate increase at all, but instead, but his numbers get dr- drastically better based on efficiency improvements. I was curious to see if you would see a Jeremiah who was expecting to get more, not necessarily isolation, but just more ball dominance and and let me expand my my offensive skill set. He seemed to be very much bought into. I'm just, I'm here to help win and make winning plays. And I don't really care how we do that. 
it doesn't need to be me having the ball in my hands. Is that, is that the general sense you have around uh, being around Jeremiah and being around the team at practice? Yeah. I mean, that is the sense. I think, I think Jeremiah would probably agree with this. I'm, I'm guessing the coaching staff would tell you that his strength is not in like clear out isolation situations. Uh, you know, I think what his strength is, is put him in like the situations where he can score. You know, it seemed like it wasn't just him, but they did it with him a couple of times last night. It felt like if Wes Miller wants to draw up, a play to get you an open three-pointer like he can do it they did it a few times with guys last night um and so i think you're gonna see a lot of that stuff or like you're gonna you know have jd coming off a cut in a in position where then he can create he can he can dribble drive he can shoot whatever he wants to do but it's not him like having to to create the shot all on his own and the other thing is you know he did it at least one time last night that i remember he's a guy david julius is a guy they're big on like rebound outlet well, if JD gets a rebound or if David Julius gets a, gets a rebound, they don't have to outlet. They can go. And so I think that's another thing, too, um, is, is that encouragement of, you know, Wes says this a lot in practice, like be a basketball player, have some savvy about you. Um, if, if the play is designed for one thing, but, you know, Jeremiah notices something, all right, take it, you know, you know figure out a way to score and get points. But I, I don't think they want to put that pressure on him where it's like, you're just ball screen at the top of the key and, and you make it happen. I, I think they'll do some of that with the Julius. Um, but I, I, I don't think they feel like that's where Jeremiah is best serves. And to me, that seems like a good instinct. It, it's interesting to see that, you know, 35 defensive rebounds, a, a quick math. It looks like 19 of those came from Mason Madsen, David to Julius and Jeremiah Davenport. So you've got these tremendous bigs, these huge guys in the paint, yet the rebounds are being collected by, guys who can get the ball and push the ball. And that can be the value of those bigs is, um, is the fact that they can, they can clear out the space for the guards to come in and crash the boards and get out and run. So I, I imagine there's some intentionality to that with Wes Miller having these guards and wings crash. It might be, or that might've been why part of the reason he was unhappy with it. Like maybe he felt like we, you know, our big guys got to get some more rebounds. I know he wanted more offensive rebounds last night, but yeah, that's one of those areas where I'm not sure. I'll be interested to see five, six games from now, if that was like a weird first game anomaly, or if that's going to be, you know, uh, something that's kind of intrinsic to the, to the West Miller thing. I, I do, you know, JD specifically, like at least he started at the four and, you know, if they're going to play him as like a stretch small ball four, they're also going to need him to rebound. So I, I think the fact that he had, what do you have eight last night? seven defensive that's that's a good sign because i think that's something they're gonna want need out of him yeah david DeJulius, i think was the second best rebounder on the team last year i, I, I would have said like tari eason and then probably david DeJulius. so that that one will probably stick we'll see about the rest um i know you're not a guy for predictions I, i'm gonna kind of wrap this up here but i i'm not gonna ask you for a prediction on record or what happens with the tournament but if i ask you at the end of the season who averaged the most points per game on this team i think davenport if it's, you know, if, if it's, if there's anyone other than Davenport or DeJulius as the first or second scorer, that's either like a really good sign or a really bad sign. That means like Victor Locken just blew up and he's, you know, <laughs> averaging 14 points a game, or it means that one of those guys didn't play as well as they needed them to. But it seems like, again, just small sample size, Davenport and DeJulius will, will be the kind of the top two offensive guys. And I'd put JD first. Which, which big man is getting, the most minutes per game at center at the end of the season. I think I'll actually, I think I'll say it. I'll say Odie because I think the, and the people, you know, again, might not realize that they're, they're playing him at five 
even if he's paired with Hayden or, or Victor who are, you know, kind of taller, maybe look like more traditional centers. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, if they're going to leave him in that spot and kind of the energy um, he provided last night, I'll, I'll say Odie. Okay. And if we're, if we, if I set the the win total for the season at 20.5, are, are you going over or are you going under? So what do they have regular? They have 31 or 32. They have 31 games. They have and that's 31 not, games. not including, we'll say this is regular season, no conference tournament, no postseason tournament. Okay. So what was it? 20 and a half, you said? 20, 20 and a half. I'll say under. And that's, I don't want that to seem negative, but I think like that 1920 win is kind of, kind of, you know, maybe a good, a good estimate there. So. I'll, I'll say under and hopefully fans don't think that, that that's me being negative. Cause I, uh, again, it's, it's hard to not be encouraged by what you saw from that team in game one. I like it. Thank you. Thank you for indulging. You made a few predictions. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. Um, but Justin, hopefully we'll have you on again soon, but thank you very much for making the time today. Any, uh, any, any parting thoughts on the team or let's make sure we're also talk, talking about the athletic and where people can find your work. Yeah, this is this is the busy season, you know, the next month and a half or so with the football basketball crossover, there's going to be plenty to plenty to write about and plenty of coverage. So if if you have not yet subscribed to The Athletic, please do it. It's it's a great time to to be reading and and frankly covering the Cincinnati Bearcats. Yep, check it out. Go to The Athletic. Um we're we're very it's near and dear to our heart. Go check them out and I want to make sure everybody knows that for the last 10 minutes of this podcast, I did it with a 60-pound dog mauling my arm because my wife apparently got home you're being accosted yes justin thanks again buddy we'll uh we'll talk soon thanks man we are now joined by chris hummer national college football writer for 24 7 sports chris great to have you on the podcast and it's great to have another hummer on the team how are you doing sir Doing good. I guess this makes the episode like H2 or something like that. So let's do it. <laughs> uh, everyone's just going to be listening to this. They're not going to be seeing it. But the joke I made before we got started here is I'm in the middle and we've got Hummer above me, Hummer below me. It's a nice Hummer sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I honestly, I so rarely come across another Hummer. I had to, I had to take the invitation when I could. But uh, yeah, it's great to be with y'all and uh, excited to start talking about some Cincinnati football. I told Kimmer that was in my sales pitch for the uh for the direct message <laughs> yeah the, you shot your shot and i was like yeah i can't i can't turn down another home absolutely not so i'm happy to be here and uh i'm sure we'll go through our family ancestry after the podcast is done <laughs> that's Beautiful. exactly right well let's get into talking about the cincinnati bearcats football team um i think chris maybe it would be helpful to start here just to give people a bit of perspective as to how you cover college football uh, from a national landscape perspective, maybe share a little bit about your background in this college football space and maybe what your approach is and what, what you offer from a coverage standpoint on 24 seven sports. Yeah, I think I personally do a little bit of everything. Um, my job is writing about college football um, that can involve news it could involve features. It involves a lot of columns, a lot of opinions. I do a lot with the transfer portal as well. Um, I kind of ping pong all over the place for 24-7 sports. Um, 
I write about the playoff quite a bit, like we all do. So uh end up talking about Cincinnati quite a bit this year. But yeah, I, I do a little bit of everything. So let's start with this playoff conversation. Before we get into the nitty gritty of the Cincinnati Bearcats football team and what you've been observing, if we flash back, we're recording this on on Monday before the, the second week of playoff rankings actually drop. Um, so do realize and have the perspective that we don't really know what's going to happen with Cincinnati's ranking yet. Um, and I, I haven't seen the narratives yet float around on Twitter um, for what's to be expected. But when Cincinnati, you know, spent the last four weeks or so in the AP poll as the number two team in the country in the coaches poll, you saw them around three move up to two and now back down to three. They came in initially at number six in the country in that playoff ranking. What was your initial thought on that ranking? Did you, did you have major qualms with it? Is it something that you actually saw as, as proper and, and, and accurate? Where were you at with that ranking? I had an issue with it. I mean, the playoff debate is always kind of an interesting thing about best versus most deserving. And usually with the group of five teams, uh, which I guess Cincinnati probably won't be for too much longer, the issue is they are not the best. And best in quotation marks, because a lot of times that means who they beat, their recruiting rankings, and what we perceive as kind of the best. And oftentimes... It comes down to things like average scoring margin. So this amount a team is beating another team to show their dominance and usually who that team they are is playing kind of in context. So with a team like UCF a couple of years ago, even though they ran the table essentially two seasons in a row, the knock on them is they did not play enough high quality opponents to kind of push itself forward, even though they seem to have earned it on the field. I thought Cincinnati this year by beating Notre Dame and Indiana by double digits on the road had earned a top four spot. I also thought because of the way they beat the other teams on their schedule. So they beat group of five teams like a power five contender would early in the season. Obviously the last three weeks, not in the standing, been a little bit more difficult, but Cincinnati did what it was supposed to. I thought Cincinnati would debut in the top four, especially when you consider Ohio State's strength of schedule with a loss was only about 10 points off, 10 points separate from what Cincinnati had, especially when you consider that Oregon's been a flawed team all year. I thought Cincinnati would debut in the top four. I understand having Michigan State ahead of them. I understood having Alabama and Georgia ahead of them. But to have Cincinnati six, I thought was a – it kind of showed the flaws of the entire system. And honestly, like from the jump, told me Cincinnati has no shot at making the playoff unless like absolute chaos happened. And I think that's a really big flaw in college football that the best group of five team we've seen in a couple of years automatically almost has no shot at making the playoffs. So – I, I sorry to give you such a long spiel, but that's just kind of how I felt about it coming out of last Tuesday. I think the spiel is helpful. Um, as a Cincinnati fan, you know, which with which both Hummer and I are, and we don't pretend to be, you know, objective or purely objective. We try and have a clear, a clear perspective when and keeping keeping context, taking context into play uh when assessing these things. Coming in at number six it brought out the most cynical version of my brain. Like I couldn't help but think, well, there's been so much chaos so far this season already where Alabama's already taken a loss. Ohio state's taken a loss there, you know, Oregon, like there's, there's already so many flawed power five teams that we can't even afford to allow Cincinnati that benefit of the doubt to be in the top four. You know, I thought three or four was probably where they would come in in that playoff ranking. And instead Number six really felt like an exclusionary 
placement for the Bearcats because even on on the night of the rankings, those those ESPN talking heads like Herb Street and um and and uh, and Desmond instantly you heard them talk about not just who was in front of the Bearcats but those teams behind them who could then pass them. So having teams like Oklahoma behind the Bearcats, um, where do you like? Do you actually see a viable path outside of literally everybody losing two games who's in front of the Bearcats and maybe the numbers uh, seven, eight teams behind them losing two games as well? Not honestly, not really. Um, I think Gary Bardo was pretty upfront. I think it was last year when he was talking about Cincinnati, ironically, he was asked exactly like what it would take for a group of five team to make the college football playoff. And he cited BYU and their normal schedule. And obviously last year was different with BYU. They didn't have their full schedule. He said a schedule like BYU, which means playing about five power five teams a year. And that is physically not possible for anybody in the group of five. The max number of power five teams, a group of five teams can play as four. And most group of five conferences play nine conference game, non-conference games. So really three. So they are literally saying this system, the way we set it up, totally excludes the group of five and cuts out 50% of college football fandom over having a hope of making the playoff. And I think in some ways we saw that reflected in the 2021 rankings. I, I don't know if it's that extreme. I can certainly see some scenarios this year in which a little bit of chaos happens, not even two lost teams in every conference that Cincinnati could sneak in. I still think they have like a small opportunity of doing so. But the fact that the system is set up that way, I just think kind of shows its its big flaws and it's currently constructed. Well, I mean, here here's the biggest flaw with with the system the way it's currently set up. <clears throat> the Big Ten gets seventy nine million dollars uh, payout from the college from the playoff. ACC gets seventy eight million. The Big Twelve gets seventy eight million. The SEC gets seventy six million. The Pac twelve gets seventy million. The AAC, uh, from a from a perception level, is approximately $43 million less valuable to the college football playoff that we get $27 million of payout. Uh, we're not invited to the seat because uh, we're not financially invested as much as those conferences are apparently. And that when you have Gary Barta sitting there with, with, with his Hawkeyes directly benefiting from a team or two from the big 10, you know, belong uh, or not belonging, but getting into the playoff, he has a nat. They have a natural incentives to keep anybody from crashing the party because they don't want to see that that revenue distribution going anywhere else. So I think it's the way they set it up. It's very clear and obvious that now. Granted, SMU choked the bed last week, so you know that is what it is. But Houston being 17 in the AP poll this week, not even being mentioned uh, in the in the polls last week, but a Minnesota team that 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 crapped the bed. A not an Iowa team that's fallen off the map, a Fresno State team that lost last week. It's they're very clearly giving these other teams opportunities for big wins, but they're keeping Cincinnati from having those opportunities by by excluding some of these teams. You know, I think that's a joke. And when you look at the difference between what what is 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 Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt and the SEC, are they really that good of a Power Five conference? They would probably still finish in the bottom half, if not last, in the American Athletic Conference being from the vaulted SEC? Yeah, I mean, objectively, I understand the idea that a Power 5 schedule is more difficult and taxing than a Group of 5 schedule. It just is. Like, Vanderbilt is not much better than, right? at least right now, Vanderbilt is not much better than a Temple, kind of a bottom tier 
American team. And I realize Temple's not the bottom of the American standings right now, but they've looked awful the last couple of weeks. So I'm just using we, we would consider them bottom of the barrel. Yeah. We don't we don't look that far down this. <laughs> okay, those people in Philadelphia, bottom of the barrel right there. Um, I used to live there, man. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm a Cowboys fan. I'm sorry. I had to throw that in there. But um, yeah, so that those two teams might be equivalent. But the fact of the matter is like going through the Big Ten, even Maryland, a team which is probably going to finish sixth or seventh in the Big Ten East, is more talented than any team on Cincinnati's week to week schedule. Like, I think like it, it's just a fact. Like, Cincinnati might have more NFL prospects, but from a pure roster construction recruiting standpoint, Maryland is more talented. So, I understand the argument of the rigor of the schedule, but there are always exceptions in my mind. And Cincinnati, it's proven to be an exception with not only the Wyatts win this year, but when you look back to last year, and I realize it's a different team and everybody's going to talk about throwing that out, but I think that matters, like the consistency and the proof of concept. And we make excuses all the time for Alabama's and Ohio State's for those past years, proof of concept. We think they're good because they've been good in the past and we think they are good because they have NFL talent. And I would love for once for the committee to kind of take the same considerations about Cincinnati with two NFL corners, multiple NFL prospects along the defensive line, a potential first round pick at quarterback. Cincinnati has that talent. They have kind of that some of the high end pieces. I would argue Cincinnati had more talent than Notre Dame when they were on the field together. And sometimes you have to take a more critical look at that. And you also have to take a more critical look at the way Cincinnati is beating the light competition, which as I mentioned earlier, like Cincinnati is blowing teams out and they should be getting credit for that in the way they're not. And we don't, we tend to make excuses for Ohio state in a close loss to Nebraska in a way we don't make excuses for Cincinnati and a close, and a close win over Nebraska in the same way we make excuses for Cincinnati and a close win over Tulsa, the same team that pushed Ohio state to a four quarter game, like what, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, maybe. Right. I think Maryland, the fact that you pick Maryland out of a hat in terms of using them as sort of like the standard mid tier big 10 team to put up against the American athletic. I just want to clarify something when you were comparing their talent level to the American athletic in Cincinnati, were you saying they would slot in below Cincinnati, but above everybody else in the conference at this point, are you saying Maryland would be the most talented team in the American athletic right now? Yeah, I'm sorry about my dog. Um, on paper, Maryland is the most talented team in the American Athletic Conference. If you look at the 24-7 sports team talent composite rankings, which I, I understand like is not an accurate measure of like what's actually happening on the field, but strictly from recruiting, strictly recruiting talent, I believe Maryland's in the 20s in our team talent composite rankings, and Cincinnati's probably in the 40s. Wow. And obviously that's not taking into account development over time and the coaching staffs that develop them. But when you're just talking about the pure roster talent construction, Maryland would be the most talented team in America. How do you think, but what do you think is the fair way to talk about that from a national perspective? Cause to me, using simply the, the 24 seven composite and not factoring in the context of coaching staff development year over year product on the field, play on the field. Like does it, it seems like if you put Maryland on the field right now with Cincinnati, Cincinnati by far is going to have more players that are, that are NFL caliber draft prospect worthy type players. Right. So to call Maryland, the more talented team doesn't seem factually accurate, but I have heard other folks, not just you talk about, you know, the talent level in those terms before, how do you, how do we like juggle that or balance that going forward? 
Yeah, I mean, like the composite that I mentioned is a tool. It's not an end-all, be-all. Like, there's a reason. I think Texas is still a top ten team in the team talent composite. LSU is a top ten team in the team talent composite, and those teams are both below 500 this year. Like, that is not the only basis you can use it use to kind of judge an overall roster's like ceiling and talent level. But I think it is a good way to measure in general where a team sits, kind of in that packing order. But as I said earlier, like when you see Cincinnati on the field, when you see multiple NFL scouts at their games, when you see a guy like Ahmad Gardner that the recruiting industry missed on because he was a little skinny and now he's put on like 40 pounds since he got to campus, he's probably going to be a first or second round pick. You have to think more critically about that. And I would like the committee to do the same when it comes to evaluating a Cincinnati. Well, I mean, they should do it for the whole roster. I mean, just on the defense alone, you got – you know, the, the joke was, yeah, the scouts already know about Ahmad Gardner, but they weren't there for Ahmad Gardner. They were there for, for Kobe Bryant, right? They're, they're there for all these other players that we have on this roster that are just studs. You know, at some point, the Sean Pace is probably going to, to, to uh, pan out as a draft pick. Alex Pierce is probably going to be a draft pick. You know, you got um, our center going to be a draft pick. Like we got, there's so many, there's so much NFL talent on this particular team that the fact that that is being overlooked and, you know, the composite like rankings are, are rankings. And we've heard, you know, a lot of people complain about ranking because USC used to have number one rankings all the time. They used to get, you know, top five recruits. And with the stories of with rivals being in, and not necessarily saying 24 seven sports is this way, but rivals grading a kid, a five-star just so he could be a five-star at USC when really he's a five-star nowhere else. Yeah. I was, I was still number pushing, seven. I would by push the way. back against that. I, I like. I know a lot of people in the recruiting industry that that does not happen. <laughs> I, I I do think that you're making a broader point here, Chris. And to be fair, this is the up. It's basically it's fighting an uphill narrative battle, and I yeah, kind of think absolutely the composite rankings to me. I I think of like if, if I'm going to flip it to basketball, and it probably is the same in football, but I have a better understanding of basketball recruiting rankings. You've got these like this elite tier of five star players who, if the NBA had different rules, they could go straight from high school to the NBA. They're that type of talent, right? That's a very small group of players. That's the type of player that I would compare to the talent on Alabama, Ohio State, LSU, typically Georgia, like this elite group of teams that do reside in the Power Five conferences. And they are at a completely different level from a talent perspective. Now, that shouldn't change the fact that they still have to earn their way in from a play, play perspective. We see what's happening at LSU right now. We see what's happening at Clemson. However, once you get into that, like, I don't know, I'm going to throw out a number of, like, once you get into 11 to 40 from a rankings perspective, like, what is the actual difference in talent at that, at that point? And those would be, like, my three- and four-star recruits in basketball where it's harder to discern exactly how talented everybody is and, and what the ranking should exactly be. And so it's sort of, it's like, it's on us to start, uh, to start overcoming that perception of really being able to differentiate in that sort of mid tier talent level and not letting that influence how we feel and how we place teams from a committee perspective. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And in the transfer portal era, those margins are significantly smaller than they were before. Like Jerome Ford was Alabama starting running back. I think his sophomore year for one week, he's on Cincinnati's roster. Evan Prater, I think, was the number three overall quarterback in his class. I mean, obviously, he's not starting right now. He's backing up Desmond Ritter. But, like, Cincinnati has dudes on its roster. And, like, a team like SMU has a ton of former elite and air quote prospects as well. And 
I agree. I don't think the difference between, let's say, 35 of NC State and 55 SMU in our team talent rankings is that significant. But like when you're talking about the committee and the way people perceive the bottom of the power five compared to the bottom of the group of five, like that is that is kind of the thought process on those two things being separate, in my opinion. And I think it holds some merit. Like it is it is more difficult to play a SEC schedule than it is to play a conference USA schedule. It just, it just is. But as I said before, I think there are exceptions to the rules and I think there are other things that people need to look at. And in this case, I think Cincinnati should be outside that argument given the way they have played. So let's move on then from, from where we have, where we saw ourselves fall number six, we'll see what happens with Michigan state losing. Maybe they, maybe they creep up another spot. I am curious one thing that Cincinnati fans and players alike are starting to battle with. And it's interesting that it's coming from players. Now Um, we heard Luke fickle and Desmond Ritter both allude to the fact that this team essentially didn't celebrate and didn't feel any level of accomplishment after beating Tulsa. Now it was an insane ending. They did a lot to almost give away the game, but in reality, the defense held up in, in an unbelievable way at the end of that game where they made basically made eight consecutive stops inside the five yard line to save the game. Um, so the, the pressure essentially, this team is essentially looking for perfect football at this point and, and a higher level of football than anybody else is being held to in the country. It feels like, like, I don't actually think there's any team in the country that is evaluated to the, to the standard that the Cincinnati Bearcats team is held to at this point. How do you, how do you kind of put that into perspective? Like, is that, is that fair because of the the group of five bias or the or the power five bias? Maybe I should say, or 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 is it fair to maybe just say we should worry about winning games and winning games only? How do you view that? I mean, it's just a fact. Like it's an unfortunate fact, but it's a fact. Cincinnati is going to have to win big to have a chance. Like we've seen the we've seen the conversation around Cincinnati the last three weeks uh, with Navy, Tulane, and Tulsa. Like Cincinnati did not win by a significant amount in any of those games. I don't believe they covered in any of those games and the narrative surrounding Cincinnati shifted a little bit. And I think by not winning big Cincinnati gives an excuse for the committee to talk about Cincinnati in a different way. And we saw that with Gary Barter the other night, I think he mentioned the way they beat Navy and the way they uh, beat Tulane and his explanation about having Cincinnati at six. So while it's not fair, like I think a 12 and 0 record for anybody, should be good enough to warrant consideration for the college football playoff. It is very difficult to win 12 games in a row. It's very difficult to win 12 of anything, rock, paper, scissors, what have you, <laughs> 12 times in a row. Like football is extraordinarily difficult to win 12 of those games in a row. So I, I think that should be enough. But with, as you said, the bias that comes with um, the group of five or the power five or what have you, like Cincinnati has to win big and it is pressure on them. Absolutely. So Ohio State gets credit for a quote unquote 21 point victory over Tulsa, but UC doesn't get credit for a 19-point win over Tulane, two teams that are separated probably by a mere probably 20 if you were to go through the full 130 rankings. You know, Tulsa probably being somewhere around the 100 mark and, and Tulane probably maybe a little more. We'll, we'll, we'll give Tulane probably, you know, 20 point, 20 separation, maybe down there in the one, 120 mark. So Ohio State gets credit for that, for doing that in the fourth quarter, but Cincinnati doesn't get credit for it. That's the hypocrisy in the system. That's the bias, the implicit bias that's there. And like when you go through some of the bottoms of these rankings, like, yeah, I don't think the difference between 
maybe if you take out UMass and Connecticut being absolute, just, just inept and UMass, honestly, just being in a desert for recruiting, because I think you Massachusetts had like six players recruited to division one schools throughout the entire state or something like that. You know, the difference between like 128 to 100, I, I don't think there's a big difference there. So I, I, sometimes I look at that, that margin of victory as kind of being like, okay, like, yeah, if you are Georgia and you're doing it, the only team that's absolutely blowing out every freaking team in the country. Yeah. They're unanimous number one, but everything else between one and, and 10 is so convoluted with teams not doing that every week, but still the only team that seems to get criticized for it is Cincinnati when they're also not beating good teams by a large margin. You, you, I mean, I know we're not talking about uh, what you would call it. Um, Maryland as being some powerhouse in the, in the big 10 right now, but saying that their talent level is, is that much greater than anybody in the AAC when they struggled to beat Illinois, who we know is really also not that good either. You know, we're, we're, I don't know. I just don't buy it. And it's kind of, that's the annoying part about college football is that <laughs> this whole system just makes, it makes it not fun to watch some of the games because like you, you had a great tweet about, look, we had to win the game by putting up seven straight goal line stops. Like that's a tremendous feat for any team. Alabama literally had to hold off a LSU team having a chance to win the game. If they, if they start moving the ball down the field, but they get a different treatment than we do just because it's, it's LSU. Who's their team, their coaches in turmoil. You know, they're going to have a new coach at the end of the season. Is the team giving up? We don't know. There's so many storylines that go into that. So it's like, it's hard to really buy this. Like that's where the bias comes from in general. It's just like, Oh, well, you know, the composite rankings, it's going to put, you know, these, these teams so much higher, but like we have Houston in this league is Maryland better than Houston. Absolutely not. Houston would go in there and trash Maryland. They're going to go in there and trash Illinois. Like uh, Houston, not being I don't know, ranked. I don't know if Houston joke. would trash Maryland, but um, Houston's Houston's a good football <laughs> team. Uh, it really does break your brain. I, I haven't personally spent a ton of time in these composites, but as Hummer was sitting there talking, and, I, and that's Ryan Hummer, um, I was <laughs> I, I just looking at this stuff. I can see how people just melt down as college football fans, and and I imagine I don't have very much sympathy for the for the for the playoff committee at all because of the the conflicts that naturally exist in the decisions they're making, and and honestly. Some of the some of the rankings, especially in the late twenties, I thought were extremely questionable, especially in that first week. But you see, you know, where Tulane and how they compare to South Carolina versus Purdue, and and the fact that they're behind uh, Toledo and 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 USF is in front of Wake Forest. Like all of these things exist. And and Chris, you did a good job sort of explaining that this is just one specific tool but it, it, it's a tool that plays into the perception bias that exists in college football. But just talking through this guys, like I, it really is kind of driving home for me why college football can be so maddening. So with that in mind, Chris, if you kind of had your perfect world scenario for how, where college football moves and, and, and grows into the next three and four years, how would you like to see their, their postseason system changed or amended going forward? I mean, I was one of those people who liked two. So, um, and I, I've always thought having more than two penalizes the best teams in the country. But two also brings in implicit bias, as you said. I can think of a couple instances like 
TCU in like what 2009, like one of those Boise State teams that probably should have had a shot to play for the national title and didn't because the BCS wasn't designed and the AP and the coaches' poll voters weren't pushed to consider teams outside of that kind of a power five window that they are. Um, but I think we do need to expand for the good of the support because it sucks that bowl games have no relevance anymore. It sucks that like 90% of college football doesn't really think they have a shot going into November. Um, so I would like to see 12. I think a system that guarantees at least one bid for the four group of five conferences or five if um, Conference USA managers to survive all this is needed. And I would certainly love to see a system that allows for multiple group of five teams to earn their way through as well. I actually thought the original proposal of 12 that they brought up a couple of months ago was good. Um, I thought it guaranteed one spot. And then if a team like Cincinnati and UCF both going around the same, well, I guess Cincinnati won't be in the group of five uh, probably when this happens and neither will UCF. <laughs> but um, if a team like UTSA has another run like this and gets the 11 seed, and isn't the best highest rated group of five champion. I would love for them to be able to get in as well, but I think we need to have some sort of representation for the group of five. And I think the 12 team system is the best way to kind of go about that. I get giddy thinking about the 12 team system, just because if you look at this year, a year where chaos has reigned supreme throughout college football, you're looking at several one win teams, obviously being eligible or, or, or worthy of that spot. But then by the end of the season, we're going to be talking about two lost teams. So basically you could be number 25 and still have a shot over the next three or four weeks. At the, you know, to, Once we're getting into November here of making the, the playoffs, just by the chaos that happens above you. And I think that's kind of cool because I look at the, when they release these initial college po- football playoff rankings, I'm like, why are we showing anything past 15? Like, what's, what's the purpose? Like you're not, you're getting a participation trophy, Pittsburgh the first week, you know, congratulations. And, you know, so I'm like, I get really excited thinking about 12 teams being like, all right, well, Pittsburgh actually still would have a shot. If they won out and have some magic happen above them, they could move up. Yeah. I I mean, I would love a system that had had made teams feel relevant in November. I remember like, this is back in the two team era. I remember growing up, it was such a big deal. And I I grew up uh, watching Texas. I watched uh, big 12 football and it being such a big deal when like a Texas and Oklahoma or even a Nebraska at that time was in contention for one of those BCS or BCS bowl births, like the Rose bowl, the whatever you have it. And in this era, unless once you have two losses, you're out, out of the picture, right? Like, as you said, Pittsburgh is a great example. Like I think even like an Auburn with had two losses going into this week, that game that Auburn played against Texas A&M would have been so significant under a 12 team system. And it really didn't matter outside of like very limited SEC West implications. I would love for that game to matter. I would love for SMU to have something to play for when they played Cincinnati in two weeks outside of the American title in terms of the national picture. I think it would be extraordinary for college football to have more fan bases engaged in November. I do love how much support there was seemingly unanimous support. I mean, it's not unanimous, nothing is, but, but that 12 team proposal got a lot of, of buzz in national media circles, obviously Cincinnati fans before the big 12 announcement was made uh, were, were huge proponents of, of that type of model. And, and frankly, even as we move into the big 12 and, and being a, a huge college basketball fan, I think that would be a healthy shift toward a more basketball type culture for college football. 
where more teams are in play. Um, it, it really seems like four was the worst of all worlds. Like four, four made it so that these BCS games became way less prestigious. The ones that are outside the playoff that is, and that, and, and like you said, like you go out of the running so early or in the case of a Cincinnati team, I feel like an absolute insane person this year watching the Bearcats because last season it was more, let's get to this new York, new year's six game. Uh, if we, you know, go undefeated, that's great. We're really happy. This was an outstanding outcome. Yes. We feel a little slighted, but all in all, we didn't get to have any sort of non-conference schedule last year. We're happy with it this year. When you have the, the, this belief that your team is good enough to compete in the playoff, but there's really, there's so many things that have to happen outside of your control. It just feels, it feels like a whirlwind and you find yourself over analyzing and over critiquing the slightest of mistakes on the field that, that frankly, like are just normal football errors that happen. And uh, I don't know, I just find it to be a, a crazy and, and wild system. But yeah, it's this- unfortunate. I think, I mean, one of my favorite memories growing up was Boise State beating Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl. And yes. that was a prove it moment for the smaller school. And I know it wasn't for a national championship, but like Boise State got that opportunity, which hadn't been given to schools like Boise State really in, before that moment and ran with it. And we've seen it happen several times since TC over Stanford, I believe, occurred UCF over Auburn. And it would be it would be nice if when a group of five team earned the opportunity, like Cincinnati, if it runs the table, will have done, they will have earned the opportunity that it was granted a chance to prove that it won't get blown out in that situation. We we saw last year Cincinnati play Georgia close. Like we we know the Cincinnati team, which returns most of the bones from that group can play that team, but the committee seems to come up with excuses for it not to happen. And I, I would love a system where a group of five team was granted that opportunity to prove that it belongs instead of being told it doesn't from the start. Perfectly said. So as a big 12 lifer, still live in Austin. It sounds like you may have grown up a, a Longhorns fan of sorts. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but what do you think about this, this new shuffling where Texas and Oklahoma are off to the sec? I thought and, you were going somewhere completely different. With oh, that. No, no. I thought, I thought you were going like, so what was you, what were you thinking about the 2009 Texas Longhorns, <laughs> Nebraska game? Cause you're talking about like favorite moments of like college sports. And like we forget, or a lot of people forget that at one point university of Cincinnati was quite literally a Colt McCoy mistake away from playing in the national championship for, uh, as you would put it, the right to get our ass kicked by Alabama that year. Um, but yeah, no, there was definitely been some some fun moments like when when the BCS era was around. The cool thing about being in the Big East at the time is we were it wasn't called the Power Five back then. It was the automatic qualifying conferences. So we were part of that group as an automatic qualifier with a tie into a big bowl game. And, you know, so not to kind of bring it back full circle, but that's the other thing I think is cool about some of these proposals for the 12 team. Um, playoff is that you can still have those you can bring back those traditional bowl tie-ins at at some point i saw a really interesting proposal for 11 teams that did a a good job of including the power five but it basically get or the the group of five but it gave all of the original bowl games had their tie-in so like the winner of the big the or the winner of the pac-12 and the winner of the uh, big 10 would play in the rose bowl and get a bye the first week you know, all the basically all the power fives get a buy in, 
And then you would have one group of five champion gets to go in and then the rest would be all at largest. And then the winners go and play at those traditional tie in bowl games. I thought that was a cool proposal, even though it was a weird number at 11. Yeah, weird. I mean, I love, I love bowl games. Um, I have great memories of them. I think in the current construct of college football, we've kind of moved away from bowl games that I like, other than just like an emotional attachment to seeing the sunset at the Rose bowl. Like, I, I would love to see home games uh, in the college football playoff personally, but I understand why we want to keep the bowl system alive. So I'm not, I'm not super attached to that, but I, I would, I would love any system that's around 12. I think 16 is too big. I think eight is too, I think 12 is a really good number. Actually. I love the idea of rewarding the top four seeds with a buy. I think the college football season is difficult enough. Um, and I don't really see a reason why a uh, team should have to play a conference championship game. And then, what is that? Four games to win a national championship potentially if you don't have a bye. But anyway, I'm I'm getting off topic. But rain down the chaos in that in that scenario. <laughs> yeah, it could be it could be wild. Like the best team in college football, if you give them three weeks to prepare, is usually going to win that game. Like very infrequently will you see an upset in that scenario. But if the best team in college football only has one week to prepare and their three of their ten best players get dinged up the week before. And these are 18 year old kids like that are trying to juggle finals and going to class and playing in the most important games of their lives. Like chaos can certainly happen and we would see it, but yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm all for protecting the top seeds in that scenario, but that's, that's probably a whole nother conversation. Oh, I think that's completely fair. I don't think anybody should have any, any uh, problems with, with protecting that. Cause more than likely that, you know, those are the teams that, you know, hopefully they're, it's always going to, there will always be a tinge of subjectiveness to college football always. And the nice part about the 12 team is that once you start getting down to that, you're going to be, you're going to have true bubble team. So it's going to come down to the same kind of conversations you're having with college basketball, but you're not going to feel as slighted because the difference and this is just my opinion, but the, when you're looking at the rankings, most years, there's a big difference between the top 10 and say the next five or the, t- the top 15 versus 20 through 25, right? There seems to be a big level of disparity there. So the conversation gets a little less, I think, it, well, maybe I'm completely wrong, but it seems like the conversation would get a little less dicey uh, once you start getting into, all right, you're, you're 20th, you, you deserve to be 20, but you know, you're, you're really going to be arguing over who's 13, 12, 13, 14. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this year, if you just look at the, I mean, I'm looking at the AP poll, but it doesn't really matter. I think they're like legitimately, and teams that like have a legitimate argument to potentially win a national championship. If we kind of threw them in that mix, I'd probably, and that's including Notre Dame, that's including Michigan state, that's including Oregon, all of which I think are really flawed teams, but on the right week, like other than that, like Ole Miss, Wake Forest, BYU, UTSA, Auburn this year, Houston, Baylor, Iowa, Wisconsin, they're not winning national championships this year. They're just not. So I am fine with those teams having to play an extra game and kind of getting eliminated early potentially. I totally agree. Totally agree with, agree with that. One thing, one thing I was trying to ask you about being a big 12 aficionado, it was sort of pivoting to the conversation about the future for the Bearcats, which is moving them to the big 12. So you're moving to this conference that has a lot more prestige. Honestly, it's what I refer back to with Bearcat fans. When we, when we do try and make the comparisons about us, you know, how we beat Tulane, how we beat Tulsa, the fact that we want so badly out of this conference and all of us fans do, 
it was a no question, no brainer decision. That is exactly why, I mean, we, we do realize that there is a talent discrepancy and, and there's a, there's more, it's a fo more formidable conference that we're moving to. How do you view that new big 12 conference though, from a football perspective? I think basketball, it's a resounding win, but it, I, everything revolves around football these days. How do you view that, that move for UC to the big 12 conference? And how do you view the conference's long-term viability without the likes of Oklahoma, without the likes of Texas? Yeah, I think it's two different. I mean, basketball-wise, it's probably the best conference in the country outside of maybe the ACC. But I would, I would argue recently, um, the Big Twelve would hold its own against anybody. But um, anyway, the football conversation. I think on the field, the new Big Twelve is better than the Pac-12 on the field. At least what we've seen the last five years. The new Big Twelve is as good as the ACC, um, and in some years, it's going to be better than the ACC. I think it's behind the Big Ten. I think it's behind the SEC. Um, the other two conferences, I think the New Look Big 12 is equivalent to, if not better, and they should hold up really well. I think it'll be a really fun conference. I don't think there will be a dominant team among that group unless one emerges, which is awesome for parity. I think we're going to see a lot of even football games. I think we're going to see a lot of fun football games unless they involve Kansas. So that'll be awesome. Um Watch Kansas become like one of those teams that just comes out of nowhere and becomes a dominant somehow football program. And then the world's just turned upside down. Oh, we, we forget we're only what, like 13, 12 years away from Kansas being in the orange bowl. So college football, <laughs> college football comes at you fast. Kansas state was in the national title mix, like in 2013, I want to say like, it, it's wild. It, I love the sport for that reason. Um, schools like that can, can be in the conversation as for like the revenue aspect of that. I think it really remains to be seen. Um, the big 12 cast a pretty wide net with their markets. Um, they went for Cincinnati. They went for BYU. They went for UCF. Um, they went for Houston, big draws. Um, also really robust undergraduate numbers. So I think in the future, maybe those fan bases expand. But there's no replacing a Texas or Oklahoma from a revenues perspective, like the history, um, the alumni base, the fandom they drive, the numbers they draw on TV. Like you're just not going to be able to replace that. So I think long term, I'll be very interested to see what kind of television contract the Big 12 will command in 2025. I think that's going to tell us a lot about how TV executives, which play a big role in college athletics, um, how they feel about this new look Big 12 and if the big 12 long-term is going to be able to keep up with an sec conference, that's probably going to bring in 50 to $60 million in year revenue for each school. I'll be curious to see, honestly, if we even get to the point that the big 12, it sounds terrible because we're, we're moving there. Uh, if the big 12 is even in existence in 2005, 25, uh, the Alliance, I, I look at it and I'm like, okay, the minute that the minute that any conference will see an opening to increase its, its, its perception, its brand, its value, it's going to do it. So if there is legitimate talk, and this is just talking out of, out of my, uh, out of you know every hole right now that's possible. But for instance, if there was an opportunity for USC and UCLA to make a move to the big 10, big 10's not turning it down ever. They're going to say, absolutely. Come on over. Welcome. We're going to expand. We're going to, we're, we're moving West, right? We're striking gold in California. So the PAC 12 is looking shaky. Do some of those teams from the big 12 get off? And then the ACC, looking at the first time around, we know Cincinnati was actually a really big part of that conversation with the ACC, um, coming down to multiple rounds of voting between us and Louisville. You know, would it be inconceivable that you know 
I look at this as great. Let's be in the conference for a couple of years. If it works out for 10, 15 years, that's, that's also great. But if it doesn't from our own selfish perspective, use this money, invest it wisely and position yourself for whatever is coming next, which if we end up moving to those four, you know, if ESPN had their way, it'd be what four, four conferences, 16 teams, uh, no NCAA tournament outside of those teams, no college football outside those teams. <laughs> if ESPN had it its way, it would be two conferences. It'd be the ACC and the SEC, and they would have 48 teams, and they could just play the top teams against each other. No, I'm being serious. Like, we all laugh. Yeah. Like, that's exactly. No, I'm being, I'm being well, no. serious. Yeah, that's that's ESPN's dream. Like, they want like that. That's why the NFL is such a great product. Everybody matters. Everybody's even from week to week. The games are always close and. Like college football just isn't built to be that way. But if you put the 48 or so best teams in the country in the same two conferences and you just played them like that, like it would be an awesome television product. That's exactly what ESPN wants, which is why, which is unfortunate. And it's why like the way we look at college football now is in danger. Well, I wasn't laughing because I wasn't believing you. In fact, I was thinking back to John Skipper, uh, who is now running Meadowlark Media, that Dan Lebitard uh, company, that media company they have. And he did a sit down with, with Levitard and, and, and basically broke it down. What Bob Huggins ended up proposing months later, which was, yeah, these guys eventually are going to want to generate more revenue in basketball. And the way to do that is to completely reconfigure what we know as the NCAA tournament. And instead of including automatic bids for every conference, instead of including, uh, you know, the Cinderella teams, it's basically just boxing them out and making the tournament, um, limited only to those power programs, whatever they define them as, uh, so that you have more and more money and more guaranteed spots for the quote unquote teams that matter. So certainly not laughing from a dismissive standpoint. This is a former ESPN executive uh, who is breaking it down and kind of laying out the roadmap for how the college the one landscape re- might the one shift in the future. The one responsible for the destruction of the Big East. Right, right. <laughs> So it, it, we've got a, it's 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 wild times ahead for sure. I I certainly am excited about what the Big Twelve means for UC financially. Um, I think that I think that the Big Twelve, that new look Big Twelve, if that's exactly what it looks like as it is now or as it's intended to be, that will be like hipster football. Like I really do think that'll be like the, everyone's favorite conference. Every every football hipster will think like that's the best conference to watch because of the the excitement, the different styles of play. I think you're going to get a lot of variety in that conference. And I think it should make for a fun, uh, a fun league to follow. Yeah, absolutely. I I would be very excited. I'm already a little big 12 bias because of where I live and what I watch. And I I do not love what Oklahoma and Texas did. And I think the new big 12 conference will be really exciting football. I think it will be the best product from week to week in terms of what you see on the field. Maybe not, maybe not the NFL draft picks that people tune in for. Maybe not always like the multitude of first round picks on every roster, but from a pure football per standpoint and a pure competitive standpoint, I think it'll be awesome. Well, I, Hummer, do you have anything else football related? Cause I wanted to ask, uh, before we let him go, I wanted to ask Chris a couple Austin centric questions since I'm missing it. There's a few things I miss and I want to see if he's what he thinks about these, these local establishments. Well, yeah, I guess my last comment with the with the Big Twelve, you know, like let's make this is all under the assumption that it's it's a viable conference. It's going to go past twenty twenty five. I think the biggest the biggest two programs. Well, I guess you can throw Houston in there too, but I'm really curious to see what happens with a team like UCF, a team like Cincinnati. A little bit implicit bias here on Cincinnati, but we already we are already located in in rich fertile recruiting grounds. 
And Cincinnati's strategy has been basically just, you know, pick off all the local kids because Ohio state's gone national. Ohio state has now taken the Alabama approach to recruiting. And so Cincinnati is now just, you know, going after all of the local talent and we're competing with basically Indiana, uh, I guess to an extent, Michigan state, Michigan, uh, even Kentucky to a certain extent, to a certain extent. So us moving to the big 12, like, I don't know if this is true. So rumors, rumors galore. Um, but there's a story out there that basically that along the lines of, you know, some of the offers that have been put out there to some kids of this space who've been like, yeah, you know, not necessarily interested anymore. Um, so I'm curious to see what it actually does to our recruiting profiles for these two schools. What do you think uh, is, is that a, a viable interest? Like, or should we expect to see the quality of recruiting for, for us going up? I mean, I would imagine, I guess it depends on what happens with the big 12's autonomy status, which I guess could be in danger potentially, but if the big 12 still an autonomy league, it'll absolutely help. Like, I mean, the opportunity to play for championships, um, fair or not is not as realistic at Cincinnati in 2021 as it potentially would be in 2024 if the big 12 is an autonomy conference it absolutely opens the door for a different level and i mean i shouldn't say a different level of recruit because a guy like luca fickle has shown the ability to sign multiple four stars while at cincinnati with the inherent biases and disadvantages that come with that position so if you put him in a league where cincinnati if they run the table and go 13 and 0 they're gonna play in the playoff like i i think it absolutely helps your recruiting just got to make, just got to make sure old Luke Fickle's hanging around for that, for that arrival. So uh, drop a bag on him That's Cunningham after the season. That will be the tough ask given how, how in demand he is both at the college ranks, but also the NFL ranks. Cause it sounds like he interviewed for multiple or at least talked to multiple NFL organizations last off season. Chris, I'm going out on the limb here and assuming that because you live in Austin, you have some level of appreciation for great food. So I ask you this Ramen Tatsuya. Have you been? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's good. Go I'm, to- not, I'm not like the biggest Rollin fan in the world. I won't lie, but um, it was a pandemic staple for us because you essentially uh, got the bowl and then you poured the broth in at home and it was, mm. it was always on point. That has been the toughest loss for me after leaving Austin was, was ramen Tatsuya. You there's, there's multiple spots in Cincinnati and no offense to these local establishments. You're all doing your best. That place is special. You can't just, nobody, not everybody can just whip up a nice bowl of ramen. Uh, besides that, what are some of your other favorite spots to to go to, eating or otherwise in Austin? Like, what are the biggest attractions for you in that city? I mean, as for ramen tatsuya, I mean, to put it in context, I was waiting like 45 minutes for ramen tatsuya during the pandemic, like outside sometimes, like to get that food. So like, that's how popular it is. Um, big taco guy. Lots of good taco stands. Uh, Law Floor is my favorite. Shout out to the little local stand near me that probably isn't even on the internet. Um, great hiking around here. We love taking our dog out. Uh, amazing food. Um, there's always something new to do. The music here is great. Um, but please don't move here is what I would say. Like, there's already enough people here. Like, Stay away. I heard, <laughs> I heard Ohio's great, so go away. But like, Austin's Move a great city York. and I encourage everybody to visit like the bar. Oh, and the barbecue here is just like first world rate. Like it is outstanding. Yeah, it really is. All of those things are true. And I, I feel like I'm owed a, a, a massive thank you package, like care package from Austinites to say, thank you for being the one person who actually left the city and moved back to Ohio. <laughs> so you're welcome. 
I did my part. I, I helped the cause and, and the overcrowding that's eventually going to happen there. But Chris, I appreciate it, man. This was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed getting to, to hear your thoughts on Cincinnati college football at large and the college football playoff. It was, it was a fun time. Yeah, absolutely, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. The last thing I'll say real quick, I just want to make sure we're plugging you properly. Uh, you can find you on Twitter. You want to give out your Twitter handle and where they can find your work? <laughs> yeah, I'm never great at plugging myself. Uh, my Twitter handle is Chris underscore Hummer. Uh, 24-7 sports is where all our work is. Um, feel free to yell at me about any of my takes on Twitter. I look forward to the conversation. All right, we'll make sure. I will include all, all those things in the show notes as well. So, Chris, thank you very much. Uh, I'll let you guys have your family reunion now. Ha, 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 ha.